before we start this episode, I'd like to share some tape our team gathered from movie theaters around the world on opening weekend. Specifically, Lagos, Nigeria, Mexico City, Mexico, and Ryan Coogler's hometown of Oakland, California. As an African, seeing Wakanda and African culture, it means a lot. It means a lot. Wakanda forever, baby. Wakanda forever, baby. Me gustó mucho de la película que siempre recordaran a Chadwick Boseman como Pantera Negra y le dedicaran esta película, por así decirlo, por su partida y me gustó mucho que ahora Shuri sea la nueva Pantera Negra. Oye, ¿y te consideras fan de Marvel? Sí, mucho. My understanding was is that we were going to be both mourning and celebrating the transition of Chadwick Boseman and so we're white in honor of that. His presence is felt throughout the, the film, but I also thought that it was helpful in allowing everyone to move on. I think as we inevitably have to, without shortchanging him or diminishing his memory. So that was beautiful. I feel at peace. Wakanda Forever opened in movie theaters in November 2022. It was always going to be a challenge for this sequel to top its predecessor, a cultural phenomenon released in a world before lockdowns. Yet in spite of a global pandemic, the film grossed hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide. And most importantly, it connected with audiences in different, more personal, and more emotional ways. I've always thought of this podcast as both a work of journalism and a work of history. The journalism part is pretty obvious. You get in a room with some people who are doing something fascinating, and you talk to them. The history part is a little more complicated. There's not a lot in this world that gives me comfort. I'm not particularly religious, but I do believe in ancestors. I don't mean ancestors in the biological sense, but in the sense of the mission. Maybe it's naive, but I have this notion that there have always been people who believe that, however cold and brutal this world is, it is our job to improve it and not just profit from it. I've got a particular attachment to the writers who believe this, to the George Orwells, the Tony Morrisons, the Audre Lords. These are my ancestors, and to the extent that I cling to something beyond the living and the tangible, it's their words, it's their spirit, it's their tradition. What that means is that I believe someday, after Ryan is gone, there will be people, presently unborn, who will look back and wonder how this thing was built. How did it happen that after decades of being confined to the margins of cinema, decades of being made objects to reinforce somebody else's power, this grand myth of Wakanda was weaved out of the history and culture of the, quote, most broken people? How did it happen that this myth itself was not confined to the margins, but instead occupied the center of American pop culture? My idea of ancestry says that we owe those yet to come an explanation, if only because we benefited from the words of those who came before us. So this podcast has always been an object of history, an artifact, a manual for how in a brutal world you leverage power for the good. You'll hear a lot of that in my conversation with producer Nate Moore. And then you'll hear Ryan and Simone Ledwood Bozeman 
reflect on the ancestor who made it all possible, Chadwick Bozeman. My name is ta Coates, and this is Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast. I talked to producers Kevin Feige and Nate Moore on our second episode, and they talked about how they brought the character of the Black Panther from the comics to the screen. Now, Kevin is no doubt the architect of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and his vision leads all the intertwining, multiverse-jumping stories we see unfold in Marvel movies and television shows. But in the Black Panther films, Nate's centrality to me is clear. It was Nate who hired Chadwick Boseman, Joe Robert Cole, and Ryan Coogler. But how did Nate get here? What was his path? And what gave him the particular vision to see what Black Panther and then Wakanda Forever could be? To answer that question, we had to go all the way back to the beginning. So I met with Nate, again, this time in person at Marvel Studios in Los Angeles. I knew he was a big comic book fan like me, so we started there. Weirdly enough, I kind of want to start when you were younger, actually, like sure. when, when you were a kid. And I, you know, I've talked a lot, you know, in this podcast and will continue about what it was like to be like a comic book fan and what comic books meant to me and what Marvel meant to me. Right. And I just, I wonder how you experienced the presence and the absence of people of color in comic books and in, you know, movies in general when you were right. really, really young, like how, right, it, how, right, how right. it occurred to you. Yeah, it's interesting. The first issue of any comic I ever got, and I'm not going to know the number, but it was it's an X-Men issue mm-hmm. where Moses Magnum is trying to sink Japan. So the, in Japan, the team is Cyclops, Wolverine, Storm, Colossus, Sunfire, wow. Nightcrawler. Wow. And I was like, look at all these faces. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. just from the beginning, you're mm-hmm. like, wow, here mm-hmm. is here is something that visually felt really colorful mm-hmm. and inviting because it was pretty eclectic, you know, and the villain was an African-American guy. Like, the whole thing felt really cool to me. Right. And a lot of my experience collecting comics was sort of diving through the 25-cent bin and getting the ones that were, you know, they weren't in sleeves and they're chipped Mm -hmm. up just because that's we couldn't really afford the new ones. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of actually old Cap books. And the old Cap books I got were Cap with Falcon or Cap Mm -hmm. with Falcon and Panther. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, again, it it felt like a medium where I was seeing a lot of people who look like me. And that was appealing Um, in a way that I couldn't articulate at the time, right? You're just your eye goes to, oh, wait a second. It's it's so fascinating to hear you talk about Marvel like that because I grew up in a community um, in the city of West Baltimore. But they were actually, I mean, people don't realize this, but because they think about comics in a particular way, like they don't realize like how diverse the audience actually is. Yep. So there were a number of kids, you know, around me who collected comics, but they were almost all exclusively Marvel. Right. Um, right. And it's largely because, you know, of what you said. Like that was, I mean, even when compared to the larger pop culture. Yeah. Like I started collecting X-Men and Storm is like leading the team. Yep. I was like, what? Yep. Like, what is this? Like, this is possible? Like, this is the thing that... Yeah. And so it is, it's kind of, you know, like your earliest sort of notion that, oh, this is actually possible. Yeah. You know, this 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 could be a thing. Was your, like, were your parents in the comic books at all? No. So my, my parents divorced when I was very, very young. Mm-hmm. My mom moved us to Clovis, California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is not a hot bit of diversity. Okay. Um, and I'm the youngest of four kids. So my brother collected. God. So I got a lot of hand-me-downs from my brother. Yeah. 
And even my older sister never was into comics. My younger sister actually got into it for a little bit too. Mm -hmm. And we would walk to the comic store, which is about three miles away, Mm -hmm. like once every two months. And it it was interesting too, because again, Clovis is not a diverse place. So there there were not a lot of faces that looked like mine Mm -hmm. or like our families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of found it in other ways. You know what I mean? And you found it in, in comics, you found it in music and some movies. And just seeing different faces was cool. Yeah, yeah. Nate and I talked about comics, about how he made his way into the movie business as a young black kid from Clovis without any industry connections. Just a love of great stories, whether they were in comics or movies. In 2009, Nate combined both and came to work at Marvel Studios. Iron Man had just come out the year before, but they weren't the blockbuster studio they are today. At that point, they were more like a startup albeit one with a larger, well-known publishing parent company called Marvel Entertainment. I called a, an executive named Jeremy Latcham, who's no longer with the company. Jeremy had gone to grad school with a friend of mine at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, he put my resume in front of Kevin's desk. Wow. And on my resume was exclusive media, which Kevin did not know. Mm-hmm. Participant, Kevin did not know that. Mm-hmm. Wait, he was a PA on Spider-Man 2? I should meet that guy. I wonder if I'll remember him. It was almost like a lark. Like, it was almost like, Where sure. was Kevin at? He was now the head of Marvel. Mm-hmm. And it was, at the time, a one or two off company. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if these movies work, great. We can make another one. If they don't work, we might be in trouble. Right, right. So they were sort of in the very nascent stages of building right. what is now Marvel Studios. Mm-hmm. And I met with Kevin, and he said, here's what we're doing. And we have this thing called the Writer's Program, and we need somebody to kind of run it. Mm-hmm. The writers program at the time was really interesting. It was a yearly program where they would take three or four writers and pay them essentially scale to write as many drafts of anything that they mm-hmm. could come up with. Mm-hmm. So it was for them an opportunity to just try stuff. Mm-hmm. At the time, there was a version of Blade that was being written. There was a Power Pack script being written. Mm-hmm. There was a Luke Cage script being written. And this young woman, Nicole Perlman, was writing what would become Guardians of the Galaxy. Wow. So I started working on those, and he also said, and we also want to develop Doctor Strange, Black Panther, and Iron Fist. What year is that? This is 2010. So I. So 2010, he wants to develop Black Panther. Yes. Wow. What did you yes. think when you heard that? I was excited. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, cool. Were that's... you like, but but were you also like, what? Like, did you do a a, a, t- a second take? Like, like we can. What happens now afterwards in the hindsight yeah. of it? We're like, yeah. of course. Yeah. But 2010, for a major studio to do a black superhero, like, I mean, that that is... I mean, Blade was out. Blade existed. That's true. That's true. And that's like late 90s, right? Yeah. I think the first Blade yeah. is like late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's an argument that's like really the first one of the modern era. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're um, correct about that. And I was maybe naively going like, oh, of course, you have to make Black Panther at the time, I, I couldn't tell you, like, I got this great plan. Right, uh, it wasn't. Right, right. I, I was working in the writer's program. I was developing those movies. We were having trouble getting anything going, partially because we had one to two slots a year, and Iron Man started to work, Thor starts to work, Cap starts to work. We started to make a lot of sequels. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and the one thing that sort of bubbled to the surface was Guardians, was Nicole's work on Guardians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but... It also was a very small staff, and Kevin needed somebody to be on Captain America 2. So he said, look, you did a great job on Guardians. We're probably going to make it, but not before I need somebody to make Cap 2. Right. So I'm going to pull you off of Guardians and put you on Cap. Uh, and so that started, you know, Cap 2, and it was very exciting, was very successful, led to Cap 3, uh, trying to figure out what that movie was. And we didn't know at the time 
we were going to get Spider-Man. Like, that was sort of a late addition, mm-hmm. which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know in the beginning that we were going to put Panther in it. But You didn't? So that no, wasn't so we were building the movie. It, it, we were struggling to find sort of the unifying idea. And Kevin, it was Kevin's idea to do Civil War, to be honest. Right. And I was like, I was a fan of the original run. I said, look, Kevin, the problem is we don't have the rights to a lot of stuff that happened in that. Right. And a lot of the other stuff hasn't been set up. Like, we don't right. have a negative zone prison. We don't have the new warriors. Like, right. how do you do Stanford? Like, and he was like, no, I, I know, I know. But you guys can figure it out. So <laughs> so that was the grenade. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and we started working on it. And we were developing the movie. And we realized there was an opportunity for... If the conflict was between Cap and Iron Man, which we knew that would be the central conflict, it wasn't publishing, there was an opportunity for like a third person to stand toe-to-toe with those mm. two characters. Mm. And, and we had a story session, and I went home, and I was like, oh, I wonder if we could put Black Panther in there. Mm. So I texted Kevin. I was like, what about Black Panther? And he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's see what the guys think. And Joe Russo is also a comic fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said the words Black Panther. He's like, yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, And we started integrating Black Panther into the narrative. And then Spider-Man. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait a second. Is this going to work? This is going to be great. What broke the dam that allowed you guys to do Panther? What happened? Um, It really was, once we started screening the movie, you know, if you have a movie, Civil War, with uh, Chris Evans and Robert Downey, and you're introducing Spider-Man, and the character that would test the highest often was Panther. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And and, and test the highest across the board. Like, this is not control for race or anything like that. Yeah, no. Just like, like, people like that. Yeah, they're like, there's the numbers. Who do you like the best? And wow. so we knew there was something really special. Uh, and so when I get back, one of the people I called to come in and pitch was Joe Robert Cole. Wow. Uh, and I skipped this part. Joe, when I ran the writer's program, after the first sort of generation had sort of aged out, we hired three new writers, and one of the people I called was Joe Robert Cole. Wow. I had hired Joe first, and then in talking about filmmakers, I remember... During the writer's program, me and Joe and a writer named Eric Pearson decided to go to dinner and a movie. Mm-hmm. And we saw a film called Fruitvale Station. Right. It was honestly, it was like a Michael B. Jordan movie. Right. More than it was a Ryan Cougar yes, movie. Yes, you know yes. what I mean? Yeah. And just like the least mm-hmm. fun dinner. Not because we were, because <laughs> the movie's bad. You're just yeah. like, that was so heavy and intense and yeah. uh, effective. And so, obviously, then we knew Ryan, but weren't necessarily tracking him until the trailer for Creed dropped. Yeah. Wait, who did that? The guy who did Fruitvale did that. Yeah. And then and then I tracked him down. And right. I tracked him down. Right. And can you recount what the conversation was? Yeah, I called him. He was on a scout for some pickup stuff he was doing in Atlanta, ironically, mm-hmm. for Creed. And his first question was, are you black? I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we laugh about that. Yeah. But did you consider, like, first of all, did you consider white directors or white writers for uh, Panther? Uh, white writers, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, white directors, not really. Why not? Uh, yeah, yeah. Probably less intentional. Honestly, just like, that didn't yeah. feel right. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but like when you think about it now, like, yeah. I, like I understand in the moment, maybe yeah. it's not the conscious thing. Yeah. But like when you think back on it, what does it mean that it did not feel right? Like why, why not? I mean, we knew... That's because I remember question. a time when... Like, uh, somebody wouldn't have made the decision you made. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, it's interesting. I, I, you know, we wanted it to feel like its own thing. And we wanted it to be set in, heavily in Africa. And we wanted him to be the James Bond of Wakanda. Mm. When I think a lot about the movies about Africa I had saw growing up that were not directed by black people, the Africans tend to be the victims. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't see a lot of them being the heroes. Right. Like, you know, I think of like Blood Diamond and you're like, right. yeah, Diamond House is great. Why is the movie about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio right, right, and Jennifer right, Connelly? Right, right. Um, and so you just wanted to try something different, I guess. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so yeah, not, was never considered. Right. And I just, I, it's interesting because yeah. there was like, and that's, this is not actually a critique of the movie yeah. um, because I think uh, she was doing the best she can. When I was back at Howard, Amistad comes out and sure. people are very mad at Debbie Allen because Steven Spielberg is directing. Yeah. And I will never forget her saying, it's not I ain't want a black director to do this. I wanted this to get done. Yep. And he was the one that could get it done. Yeah. Like this is how, and now here you are a generation later. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have to make that choice. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because I can see the pieces coming together. Like, I can see you, you know, as a child, reading these comic books and being attracted to this thing, you know, with all of these faces. I see you in college, uh, or maybe just after college, having all of these jobs and understanding how the business works. I see you at Participant, almost being awakened to the idea that the impact that film can have. And then maybe also at Participant, realizing that films have to make money. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's great, but yeah, Exactly. <laughs> you know Very <laughs> important. <laughs> so one of the things I think about is, you know, the next step, when you finally get to making Black Panther, you're conscious, like, because see, the weight of it, and it's always often like this with stories of people that come from marginalized communities. Yeah. You're not just bearing the weight of the film. Yeah. So you were thinking about that. Like, we are not just making a film. We are yeah. creating a con. We're creating a market for for the yeah. woman king, yeah, or or not, you know, or not. There, there was there was certainly. I remember a couple conversations in Atlanta when we were in prep, and and Ryan notoriously works long hours, and mm-hmm. and it was late, and everybody had gone home, and we talked about what would happen if the movie didn't work. Mm. Like to your point, like the fear of, look, you could create the wrong kind of comp very mm-hmm. <laughs> very easily, especially at a place that only had movies work. If this doesn't work, mm. you start to go, why didn't that work? Why didn't that oh, work? Wait a yes. second. You yes. know what I mean? Yes, yes. Um, yes. And so that, there was, I would say more so than, man, we're going to create this great comp. It was like, oh, man, if we blow this, we are going to make it hard for movies like this to get made. Yeah. Because yeah. you go, well, they were hit, batting a thousand until they made Panther. Right, right. Um, and luckily, the reverse happened. Mm. How do you categorize the difference between the emotional response to... Um, Black Panther and Wakanda Forever. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, the the weight of this movie was so different than the first that's one, right? right? The yeah. first one was, uh, are they going to pull it off? Because that looks really fun. Yeah. And they didn't. We're like, it was really fun. We did yeah. it. It feels like a triumph. It feels like a celebration. And this was, A, I think, and maybe, you know, sometimes I worry we listen too much to what people say online because that clearly is a, a small vocal minority. Right. But... Did we make the right decision? Did we make the right decision here? Should we made this movie? Should we done it differently? Mm-hmm. What do we do? There's a lot of weight in this movie. And again, the first trailer felt good because it was like, oh, okay. Right, no, it blew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. people, okay, people understand what we're trying to do right. with this, right. which is the degree of difficulty of this movie, I think, is unparalleled because no one's ever had to do it. Mm-hmm. In that we lost the title character of our film, who was also our friend, mm-hmm. and are also trying to help people deal with that loss in a real way and tell a story that's entertaining and also be fun. And they would, I mean, wow. And so the response this time, I think, felt a little bit more like relief than a celebration of like, okay, yeah, we didn't uh, <laughs> embarrass the man or his family. Right. We did as right as we knew how to do. Right. And again, we'll see what, what time will say about the movie and 
you know, it is, a, I think, a more challenging movie than the first one because, of course. Yes. So the experience people have out of that movie is, is not the same. I think some of the responses I've gotten anecdotally are almost more emotional but in different ways. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, honestly, Nate, uh, I think long-term the second one's going to have more weight. Right. I obviously love both films, but there's a... Um, to the extent that it's a challenging film, I think it's because it's a, a superhero film that's like mourning. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think people go to, you know, superhero films a lot of times to feel great, yes. which you kind of got out of the first Black Panther. Yep. And this one is is a much more, you know, it has all of the spectacle, yep. all the beautiful bells and was all, like, if you want to see that, it's there. But the feeling of it, the weight of it is very, very different. And yeah. I am anxious for people to see it in the theaters, but then to see it again at home. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Because there's, there's just a lot to dig through, man. It's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot to dig through. There's a lot to dig through. Yeah. And I, I, I really want to extend this back to where we started in a conversation with, with you know, you as a kid collecting comic books. Yeah. I'm not saying this is the end of your career, <laughs> but, but you can see like the arc of the journey, right? Yeah. Like you can yeah. definitely see. I mean, from the kid collecting comic books, being attracted to all of the diversity, through all the steps I mentioned before, to making Black Panther and Wakanda forever. Mm-hmm. How does it feel? Uh, boy, I wish I had a good answer to that question. You know, the truth is I haven't had time to process. Yes. It, you mm-hmm. know, uh, mm-hmm. and, and we are in pre-production on Captain America 4 and Blade. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like, you're like, okay, keep going. Like right. the movie came out. I was like, great. Uh, uh, I'll be at work on Monday. And right. Ryan was like, wait, are you going, <laughs> you're going back to work? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like we got to keep making movies, mm-hmm. you know? So hopefully at some point I'll be able to stop and think about it. The truth is I do feel very lucky be able to make any movies yeah. to be honest yeah. and that they happen to be these movies is pretty special and I think you know one day when, <laughs> when I actually have five minutes to think about it and talk to my kids about it I think it'll be pretty magical yeah but right now it's sort of what's next yeah. you know and 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 making sure what's next is as good as what's come before because it is not nothing is a given in this business and being a good storyteller part of that is just sort of keeping keeping telling stories. It's a particular experience to pour all of yourself into something like Wakanda forever and then release it into the world. Maybe some of you out there have kids and thus can relate to the anxiety of giving all you can to the child, only to see them go out of your house and have their own set of interactions, some good, some bad. Art is like that. The work comes from you. You have your own private time with it. And then it takes on a life of its own. And like any parent, you worry. You hope the work reaches as many people as possible. And when it does, a whole new set of anxieties come to the fore. We've said before that Wakanda Forever was a special child, one that embodies the tragedy implicit in its birth and is yet bound by all the expectations of the genre. For our final episode, I could think of nothing more appropriate than the journey back to the start of the movie's conception with Ryan, but also with the person who knew the lead actor for Black Panther best, Simone Ledwood Bozeman. An artist and Chadwick Bozeman's wife, she also co-founded and chairs the Chadwick Bozeman Foundation for the Arts, a nonprofit dedicated to providing scholarships and critical funding 
to uplift black artists across the diaspora. This includes the Chadwick A. Bozeman Memorial Scholarship, which was established at Howard University in 2021 with a donation from Netflix to support students pursuing the arts. I talked to Ryan and Simone about Chad's legacy, but also about their memories of him in a conversation recorded just weeks after Wakanda Forever premiered around the world. I started with a question for Simone. I kind of want to start, if we can, like at the beginning. Um, I've watched some interviews with you. I've seen some of this. I know you haven't done a lot, but I've seen a little bit of what you've done. I've been trying to put into context for people who Chad was as an artist. Mm -hmm. And I think you can kind of help with that. But to do that, I actually want to talk about your path as an artist first. And then, you know what I mean? And then what you saw, you know, of Chad, you know, up close. How did you start singing some Like, what was it? I don't actually ever remember a time when I wasn't singing. The story that I get told is that my great-grandma would hum to me. Mm-hmm. She would say, sing, baby. And I would, like, hum. I was, like, I was a baby. I was cooing, but I was humming back to her. And from as far back as I can really remember, you know, it was like, go sing that song mm-hmm. that you be singing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Send me sing this little light of mine. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and, I was, and I was just singing. Did you and Chad ever collaborate on anything? Not officially. <laughs> That's what I mean. But even yeah, like, unoffic- not I mean, like, not, I'm not like that was released. I mean, just because art is not just what's released to be consumed. It's also what you do. Yeah, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Chad played guitar. Yeah, I'm not surprised at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was he was really good. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was literally good at everything he put his hands yeah. on. He was good. Um, Did he have a freestyle in front of you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nonstop. Kind of, like, every time we would get in the car. Because we had a few, like, we would listen to a lot of, like, beat playlists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he, like, he couldn't help himself. He was always freestyling. To the point where sometimes... A little much. He'll be like, okay, all right. (laughs) You know, between that and, like, James Brown coming out every Mm -hmm. five minutes. It was like, (laughs) all right. Can we get back? Can Chad come back? Um, No, but he... um, at one point, I, I started wanting to, to learn how to play the guitar. So I bought myself a guitar, mm-hmm. and Chad played it more than I did. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, we would just sit around in the house, and he would just, like, lay down by the fireplace and just, like, play whatever mm-hmm. was in his heart or in his head. And mm-hmm. I would sit over, and I would have a book, or I would just be humming, or the TV would be on or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there were just these little, you know, little pockets of normalcy that mm-hmm. now feel you know heavier than they did yeah then yeah the reason why i asked i actually asked that question about whether y'all collaborate is because like um thinking of chad back um at howard like he was enormously talented right but he wouldn't have been the dude i would have said movie star at all hmm. there were people at Howard back then, they were clearly aspiring to that. And um, he definitely didn't seem like he wanted that. Like, he was pure artist, you know what I mean? In a very, very, very particular way. And so when it started happening, I mean, it only made sense, you know, when I saw it, I was like, yeah, of course, you know what I mean? But it wasn't the thing I, I, I saw. And so one of the reasons why I was curious to ask you about all of that is because being an artist yourself, I wonder from your perspective and, you know, having spent so much time around him, 
What did he bring as an artist that was different? I know that's a big question. It is. It's a big question because he brought so much. And the first thing that comes to mind is not necessarily something that other artists don't bring, but, but it's faith. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, never have I ever met any person ever that had that kind of faith because he seemed to almost perfect the art of being the vessel. Mm. Mm. And... He would separate himself. I don't know if this is even going to make sense, but it's like he would separate himself so completely that he would find a new version of himself through the work. Mm. Like he would be one person at the beginning of the process, but he would allow the process to redefine him. Mm. You know, one can only do that if they fully remove Mm themselves and their ego and the person that they think that they are from the situation. He was made into an entirely new creature mm. every time. Mm. That's, that's like really, really interesting because I think, and I, I don't mind, I don't know if you've had this experience as an artist, but I, you know, I, I know I've talked to people and, you know, in the most blessed of times I felt this way where it's like not you anymore. Like you're doing the thing and it's not like there's something, mm-hmm. you know, other thing that's going, mm-hmm. going through you. Does that, could you. Can you see that in his work as T'Challa? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. Chad played a lot of roles where he was portraying people that mm-hmm, right. had lived. And this is different in that this this is like a fictional character. But I think like T'Challa is interesting because he's based on like real feelings, real dreams and hopes, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was definitely a vessel for all of that. Getting to know Chad actually helped me understand that character. Like it was one of the reasons I was looking forward to making this movie with him. Like, Cause it was like how I learned to make movies. I think it's like independent cinema, like the language you attack things through the flaws. So T'Challa is a tough one, mm-hmm. you know. Like like you've written about T'Challa and Wakanda before, yeah. you know. Um, if you learn to attack things like that, that character is very difficult, you know. Like like I haven't had conversations with Stan Lee about him. Like mm-hmm. Stan Lee was like, "Yeah, I made him perfect, like for, for all the racists out there." Like he was like, "Can't say nothing," you know. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's the energy of the character from from, from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I made him smart. I made him rich. I made him mm-hmm. handsome. I made you know, like mm-hmm. like 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 all of these all of these things. So he was he was a character where I was like, "Oh man, like how do I, you know, how do I get in there?" And seeing Chadwick's performance in Civil War was was helpful, but like meeting him. And like getting to work with him through the process, like, like I always knew what was special about T'Challa, you know what I'm saying? And why people love that character, love Wakanda, but but working with him made me understand like just how deep it goes, mm-hmm. you know? And like I think personally, selfishly, you know what I mean, you know what I'm saying? But I, like I see that character in all of all the Chadwick's performances, I see the most Chad there. Mm-hmm. Well, I know it's the most Chad there. Me and Joe was writing them lines. I was watching the takes. You know what I'm saying? Like I was looking for the reality. You know what I'm saying? My friend, my guy. Like I was looking for it. Like where where was it true? And um, that character in that film touched people. And I know, having been on inside of it, making it that that was Chad touching people. You know what I mean? Like truthfully, like, but yeah, like he was totally the vessel for all like fairy white's hopes and dreams and mm-hmm. you know, all all the things mm-hmm. that. People wish was the reality. I actually, someone, I actually heard you say something similar that that like when people fall in love with the child, they fall in love with, like with mm-hmm. Chad. And I saw you, you know, nodding your head. Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say that? When like like when you said 
they fall in love with the guy. I know they fall in love with him. Yeah. I also want to like say too, when I say a vessel, it's like he's a, a vessel for the spirit. Yes. Yes. Not like, you know, because he did like obviously a lot of a lot of biopics, and you have to you know reinvent yourself. I think in a different way. But because he was trying to be that vessel all the time, then what he was trying to open up to at all times was truth, the highest truth and the highest love. And those are things that I see in the character that I know are Chad, too, Mm. right? In a lot of ways, it's like Chad was being prepared his whole life to play Mm. that role Mm. because T'Challa's character is his character. You know, I mean, he working in the African bookstore, learning about, yeah. you know, studying history, studying mm-hmm. mythology, mm-hmm. studying, you know what I mean? Learning that, starting martial arts. Mm-hmm. So, so therefore he was able to, you know, do a lot of his own stunts mm-hmm. and, be, you know, and having the network of teachers around him that poured into him that he could pull from. It was like all the pieces kind of fell into place mm-hmm. for that moment. Mm-hmm. And as we would talk about it, it definitely felt like one of those moments for him where it's like you just realize how everything in your life has come together. Could he see that? Right now. Yes, 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 yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just, I want to fast forward a little bit and um, I want to ask, um, because I know you guys had conversations about how to proceed forward. Um, after after Chad passed, I I just want to ask like, Simone, at, at what point were you able to even contemplate, or did you even contemplate? T'Challa had been so much of him invested in it, and so he is, you know, he's a franchise player. You know what I'm saying? Like, how that franchise would proceed, whether it even should proceed. Like, did you like when did? Did those thoughts enter your mind? Were you were you considering that at all? Honestly, it was the last thing on my mind. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, and the only the only thoughts that I had about it were around how Chad was feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And just how much um how much it hurt him that he wasn't going to be able to be a part of that. And after he passed, it was, you know, really, really quickly, the question that's on all of the fans' minds, like, you know, what are you going to do? And it was pretty soon after his transition that the team, you know, Kevin, Nate, Ryan, had had said that they were not going to recast him. Um, time is a blur, so I don't know how, uh, you know, how, how soon exactly after. And I remember talking to Chad's management team about it, and we all, you know, were just really, I uh, struggled to find the word. I want to say emotional, but we were all, you know, it was already an emotional time, but we just, I just remember feeling just so much gratitude. Mm-hmm. And it was also just a a moment, too, a reminder that everybody in the business is not just about the business, right? Because it's 
uh, almost now multi-billion dollar franchise and and that that story has to continue and it should and it and while I try to not speak for Chad I know it's not something he would have wanted to end because he transitioned but the thought of somebody you know else just kind of coming in and playing that role it wasn't it wasn't something that I wanted to entertain, so I was I was really grateful that none of us had to, mm-hmm. um, because that decision was made. Yeah, you know I, I want to ask you about something, and I, I want to be really sensitive about this, you know, because I know we all need our own space to to hold things. Um, but please forgive me. You mentioned that um, it hurt him that he wasn't going to be able to continue with it. I want to ask if you would mind speaking a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean. It was such a special project for dozens, hundreds of reasons because of how important it was, because of how it could change and did change the lives of people and industry and the family that was built while they were filming it and everything that can be done with the story. And while that was an enormous amount of pressure, it was also a huge privilege and blessing to be able to play that role, you know, in the, in the larger scheme of what is playing out through this project. And, and it's, it was what he loved, too. So on level one, you have that this is just what he loves to do and not being able to do that and make more of that and tell the stories that he knew should be told in the way that he knew they should be told it's that and then it is this particular thing and the weight and the you know you you imagine that like this is this is possibly like one of the most impactful things that you will do that any one person, anyone would do in their career, in their life. One day you are regular guy going to the grocery store and the next day kids are dressing up like you and you're seeing how this piece of work that you have given your all to is doing exactly what you want it to do. It is raising up everybody that it touches, everybody. And it's teaching and it's opening minds of people who have been closed and it's opening hearts. And and it is doing so much to uplift this community that you love. Mm -hmm. And you get to lead that, you know. And he was just, um, (sighs) and I, I do, you know, just personally know that he was so well equipped to do that, to be that person, not just to play the role on screen, but everything else that he did off screen, every way that he led off screen, off set. And then having to sit through and say, well, you know what? Having to make yourself feel okay about it, knowing that these hands are capable of doing what they need to do. I don't know who's going to be in this space, but... I know that 
Ryan over here is in the space that he's in, and I know I can trust him. So that'll be okay. I just think that um, he loved his work. And he had put so much, he had sowed so much into this that it was just, it was hard for him to to know that he he didn't get to do that anymore. He didn't get to keep sewing and see what else it would become. What's incredible about like what you just gave and, and the answer you just offered is like, you know, like one of the things we've been struggling with on this podcast, honestly, is like where reality ends and where like a film or a piece of entertainment or art begins because I feel like much of what you just described is like very much the sentiment we get like in of Wakanda in the film. It's very much mm-hmm. like, you know, what's going to happen here? You know, who's solid over here? Who's going to take up the mantle? won't have a Black Panther anymore. And, I, you know, Ryan, I know you said that you pulled a lot, you know what I mean, from very, very real things. The truth had to be, you know, the, 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 the highest principle. Um, you, you called Simone to talk about the possibility of how to proceed. Yeah, I think we spoke a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were those conversations like? Hard to say from memory. Because, um, like she was saying, it's the last thing you want to talk to somebody about mm-hmm. going through something like that. It's unimaginable, you know, but had to talk to her about it. Like, for this movie, bro, that was how we made it. We made the movie very, like, honest and we worked closely with each other. We got to know each other, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and I got to know Simone through. Chadwick, we're like we from the same place. Like we from the Bay Area. You know what I'm saying? There's no version of me. There's no version of me making business decisions around this movie and not consulting it. You know, if everything was put on the other foot, I know Chadwick would have reached out to my wife, Zinzi Evans Cougar. I know for a fact, like we're not industry people, bro. He a black man from Anderson, South Carolina. I'm a black man from the Bay Area, bro. You know what I'm saying? And that was how we <laughs> that was how we was able to work. That was how we was able to make that movie. Before director, actor, before artist, before any of that. And that's how I'm moving. You know what I'm saying? I'm moving on. The other stuff gotta fall in line with that, if that makes sense. No, it, it, it totally, totally does. When we first started with the idea to do this podcast, one of the first things that happened was um Ryan hooked it up so that, you know, me and my wife, Kenyatta, could go see the, uh, the, the, the you know, the, the cut that you had at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting there watching everything, right? And um, then the scroll comes up, like, of Marvel, and it's all him. And Kenyatta just lost it. You know what I'm saying? Just completely, yeah, yeah, hey, stop the film, stop the film. And I know you saw it, you know, before All Us and everything, you know. Um, that was where I lost it, too. Okay. And it took me probably like five hours to watch it. Yeah. Did you have to stop it? I had to keep stopping. I had to keep stopping. And yeah, just seeing him that much, um, the smiles and the laughs and the, that's that's really, I think in even in like the flip card, mm-hmm. those were the moments that really, really, really got me. Mm-hmm. And. It's also been a process, too, just like, you know, again, just kind of trying to put myself in as much as I can in Chad's mind. 
with everything that kind of has to be taken care of after somebody transitions and then asking myself, okay, well, then what does this mean that he expects of me? Mm. Like, what's my job Mm. now? All these things that I have to take care of and all these people now that I have to take care of. And Ryan calling me and saying, hey, you know, is, is this, how do you feel about this? Let me know. And then watching the film and knowing like, okay, I can't just be watching this like I would normally watch this. I have to try to watch this how Chad would watch this. Wow. And I have to like really pay attention to who I believe and do I like do I really believe it? Does this feel true? Does this feel real? Um like you couldn't watch it as a fan. I couldn't watch it as a fan because it was a job. And feeling like this is not my arena, this is not my field. It was exhausting. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. It was exhausting because um, it was also so emotionally taxing. I mean, the whole movie is like it's a symposium on what happens when you lose somebody, when you lose somebody important. Not that everybody is not important. I didn't scratch that. As a matter of fact, but important. <laughs> but, you to know, you. when you I lose somebody important to you, and somebody important to you, and somebody that also just like has their hands in so many different Mm -hmm. spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what I appreciated about it was that it moved on pretty quickly Mm -hmm. from the funeral scene to life and what else was happening because that is, it's just such an accurate reflection of loss. Not that you move on because you never really move on. Um, You move forward. But life is happening all around you, so you don't have a choice but to move forward. Once, you know, we address this thing in life and on screen, you know, we get to see the world progress, but then we also get to see how the grief continues Mm -hmm. with each of these characters and then how that Mm -hmm. defines how they move uh yeah, so it 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 took me six hours and <laughs> um and I was sitting there at the end of it thinking like ah, I should probably like watch it again. Mm. I should probably just like watch it again mm. right now. Um, but you know, there's like a guy waiting to pick up the laptop and you know it's midnight mm. at this point mm. and it was also a practice in just you know saying okay, well, what is my instinct? Mm-hmm. I should just call Ryan now mm-hmm. while it's fresh. Mm-hmm. And we talked. And and there really wasn't, there weren't a whole lot of notes. Mm-hmm. And I really, I just thought it was beautiful. I just thought yeah. he did such a great job. And I wanted to tell him that right away mm-hmm. so I could soothe even an iota of anxiety that he might have been having. Because I do, I just think that it's, I think the film is beautiful. So, uh, movies out all around the world. Ryan, you've been to premieres. 
Lagos, Mexico City, New York, L.A., London. I, did I miss anything in that? D.C. 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 with the foundation. D.C. with the foundation. Y'all were together in D.C. Yeah. Um, hey, can I just say, I, I, I'm going to go off script for that. Can I just say, Simone, I really, really appreciate what you did. Setting up a scout at Howard and mm. the fact that them kids get that for years mm-hmm. to actually be artists. You know what I'm saying? Like the importance of artists, how struggle to our community and everything. I just, I, 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 I want to say I really appreciate that. Frankly, as somebody who went to Howard and was like, man, it'd be really cool to be like a, a writer or do whatever. And there was just no track for it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I had to find mm-hmm. the most tangible mm-hmm. thing I could, which was not what I really, really wanted to do. And I ended up dropping out largely because of that. Mm-hmm. So I really, I, I thank you. I thank you for doing that. Because um, that was me. You know what I'm saying? That would have been me. Yeah, our scholars are like, they're just brilliant kids. And yeah, like anybody that's in school, period. But particularly, like you're studying art. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna struggle. Yeah. Once you get out of here, yeah. so to just be able to focus on doing art. Right. Right. That's right. all you got to do. Right. I'm honored to be able to do it. You know, um, I'm grateful to Netflix. I don't know if I can name drop that. No, I don't think I'm grateful yeah. to Netflix. Um, Scott Stuber and 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 Ted Sarandos and Tending again that 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 they approved the the amount for the scholarship so that it never ends. Right. Are you able to say how much it is? They gave $5.4 million to an endowment. Mm. And so, you know, the way endowments work is that it operates off of interest. Right. So the principal never gets touched. So that scholarship is going to outlive mm. everybody sitting around here mm. today. That's incredible. Um, it's actually even deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Um, because Bob Iger is leading the fundraising efforts for the new College of Fine Arts that's been named in Chad's honor, which is huge and and speaks not only to his humanity, but also his love and respect for Chad as well. Right. Yeah, and it's it's the scholarship at Howard gets to do that, and then the work of the foundation gets to make sure that happens elsewhere. Mm. People that aren't at Howard, that may not be going to college, that may, you know— yeah, it's beautiful work. It's beautiful work. And it's full circle for him because, you know, mm-hmm. student here, not just student, student who fought mm-hmm. for the college not to be closed. Mm-hmm. College reopens, name for him, and money for the kids still going. And as mm-hmm. you said, also expanded outward for kids that may not even, you know, young people mm-hmm. that may not even be going to college. Young people, old people, yeah, middle-aged oh, people. Got it, got it. All people. Got it, all people, all mm-hmm. people. So um, I, I— I met them kids, bro. I wasn't, going, I wasn't ready for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, yeah, she didn't, she didn't give me no heads up. What happened? Well, you how, right how did it happen? What happened? I, I, right I just met the scholars. But how did, like you saying you wasn't heads up? We went to the screening in D.C. Mm-hmm. as we go to all of these screenings. And, um, you know, I knew we were going to have the screening. Obviously, I figured we would, we would introduce the film and take pictures. I knew I would see Simone and Logan and Chow's family. But I didn't know I was going to see the kids. I didn't know the kids was already, I didn't know it was going already. Like, I knew the school mm-hmm. had been named for him and... and mm-hmm. So I saw Simone, she's like, yeah, and these are our scholarships. <laughs> we had just come off the carpet. Yeah. And I think Ryan and Zenzi were just about to go on. And we saw each other at the top of the carpet. And, um, yeah. yeah. There was no time to give you a heads up. I was, I was, I was, a, I was a puddle, bro, for like the rest yeah, of the day. Wow. You know, because yeah. um, I'm just meeting them and they're like, I'm going to be, I, I'm a, you know, a production design. And it's, I'm like, I'm just like, wait. <laughs> Wait, it's already gone? Like these kids, you know, like and just and just seeing the look in their eyes and you know how young they were, but how they feel like they had it figured out, you know, and, and seeing yeah. Simone with them, you know what I'm saying? Proud. Like I yeah. yeah, it was the most touching moment of the 
press tour for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I say it's about getting emotional. But like, yeah, that the press What's tour. What's up with you and not getting emotional? You keep saying that. <laughs> bro, because like, I, I, I don't want to be crying on this, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but, but like. The, the, He's a black man from the Bay Area. He just said that every time. You know, obviously it's emotional material. Yeah, yeah, he but, gets I'm, but emotional I'm trying to... and then he's mad about it. He gets mad about the fact that he got emotional. No, I'm mad at you about it. You know what I'm saying? I'm <laughs> just mad in general. <laughs> we, we, the, the press tour was a fun time, bro, on that, on that first mm. movie, man. Mm. Like, we got to hang a lot. Mm. You know, I remember you met up with us in New York. Mm-hmm. So going through it with all of them, it sucked, man. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it, it did, yeah. like. But then, like going to the, to DC and seeing the kids, yeah. it was like what the movies about. You yeah. know, what I mean? you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. like straight up. I, I was, mm-hmm. I was like, I was like, knowing what that school meant to him. You know, look, man, I'll tell you a story from the press tour, bro. I think it was before you came to New York. We doing a, a New York premiere. We already did the LA premiere, and we had this, you know, small screening room, might be like a DJ theater or something like that. It's cold, and um, I'm with Zins and. She did something goofy with our contacts. Like she probably put the lotion on and the lotion touched her, but she's completely, <laughs> she's completely <laughs> blind. Like, cause, cause our contacts is going, is going crazy. So I gotta get her back to the hotel. And Chad's nervous, and this man was never nervous. And he's like, "Yo, is Denzel coming?" And I'm like, "I just texted with him, and he said he was pulling up." And he was like, "All right, I gotta talk to him." And I'm like, "Okay." So I texted him and told Denzel, "Like, come, we at this other, other little spot." So now at this point, I'm hoping he don't stand us up. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> I know he's busy. And then uh, Denzel comes in, and it's Denzel away. You know what I'm saying? Hey, what's up? You know? <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna watch this movie. Man, I'm gonna get, in, I'm gonna get out of here, man. See what y'all boys doing? You know? And uh, and Chad takes his hand and says, "I wanted to thank you. You know, I never told nobody about this." When I was at Howard, yeah. Felicia, you know, reached out to a bunch of her friends and had them pay for students to go to to Oxford for a year. And, and I was a student you sponsored. And, like, brother, mm-hmm. look on Denzel's face. Because mm-hmm. I, I could tell, like, he remembered. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that was you. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm just I'm just sitting there watching this. No idea. We, we, we would lose Chad when, when we would, but... It was like, damn, yeah. So back on that on that carpet with them kids, bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, like it's full circle, right? And he held it so he could tell the guy to his face. Mm. And like for me, I'm getting taught in that moment. You know what I'm saying? Child, like my big brother. You feel right. me? I'm getting taught in that right. moment. Right. Like right. I'm getting um exposed to something special. You know what I'm saying? So then being on the carpet with these kids, I'm like, oh my god. I mean, you know, what's deep is like what you're saying is it's kind of in his spirit, like he's doing for all them kids, basically what mm-hmm. Denzel did for him. Mm-hmm. 100%, bro. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Denzel pulled up on me and Zenz after he watched the movie. He was like, man, y'all, he like, man, y'all boys, man, y'all, y'all off to the races, man. Like, like this, this is, man, this is what we do. This is what we did it for. Seeing them kids was like, mm-hmm. it was like, yeah, it's still, it's still going, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is it, the end of our journey. We've gone from Wakanda to Telecon, from death to life. 
We've seen the pain the actors were pulling from and the cultures our crew was pulling from. We've seen who had to be in place where and what they had to do to make a science fiction epic feel true. Altogether, we've seen how Wakanda Forever was conceived, revised, and then built. It's easy to lose sight of what all that means. A black president was a dream before Obama. After him, after all the twists and turns of history and politics, it became easy to forget that the dream really had become real. The notion that there would be a grand epic rooted in the history and culture of two of the most exploited peoples on the planet, that that epic would be invested with budget and resources that come with a blockbuster film, well, for a lot of us, that was a dream, too. And now it's true. The dream is real. I often wonder what the world will be like when it's run by people who don't remember a time when a black president was a dream. Likewise, I wonder what film will look like when people who were raised in the world of T'Challa, Ramonda, Shuri, and Namor are not just fans, but filmmakers themselves. In that sense, the journey really isn't over. It's only just begun. Thanks for listening to Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast. If you like the show, be sure to follow, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends and loved ones to do the same. Learn more about our journey and about other new projects from Proximity Media in the world of Wakanda at ProximityMedia.com and follow at Proximity Media, at Marvel, and at Marvel Studios on Twitter and Instagram. Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast, is a production of Proximity Media in collaboration with Marvel Studios and Marvel Entertainment. The series is written and hosted by me, Tanahasi Coates, and produced by Paula Mardo. Executive producers are Ryan Kugler, Zinzi Kugler, Sev Ohanian, and Paula Mardo. The film score is composed by Ludwig Gorenson. James Kim is our story editor. Our audio editors are Cameron Kell and Cedric Wilson. Sound design and additional music is by Pat Masidi Miller. Lauren Newson is our audio engineer. Paulina Cherizova is our production assistant. Special thanks to Octavia Rideout, Adam Cole, Susan Mueller, Lydia Ward, Courtney Archard, Natalie Mead, and the Proximity Media team. The character of the Black Panther was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, is co-written and directed by Ryan Coogler. It is produced by Kevin Feige and Nate Moore, and streaming only on Disney+. I'm Tanahasi Coates. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.